0: Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. morning. My name is Sam Deloy. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Highlands, and it is my privilege to bring God's Word to us this morning. So why don't we pray together? Father, what a joy it is to gather uh, together this morning, to sing, to remember your Son, to hear your Word. You are indeed a good Father, and we are thankful for your grace and your love and your mercy towards us that even while we were sinners, you sent Christ to die for us, and we celebrate the life that we have in Christ. So even as we open your word, we ask that you will guide this time, that these will be not my words, but your words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, picture this with me. There's a family of three, mom, dad, their toddler son. They live over on Stewart Avenue. They have a huge front yard. But as you can imagine, mom and dad, they have some pretty specific rules when it comes to, to the road. Mom would say things like, always hold my hand when crossing the street. And dad would say things like, never go chase your basketball in the road, but place yourself in the kid's shoes. The rules, they feel stifling. They feel overbearing. It doesn't feel fair. But you and I know that those rules are for the kid's protection, and it's not for a couple of years that he realizes that his parents were protecting him. Fast forward a couple years when the same kid is 15 years old and he cannot wait to drive. So the day he turns 15 and a half, mom and dad drive him down to the DMV. He gets his learner's permit and the world's worst backseat driver, his mom, becomes the front seat driver. And she's gasping every time he goes around a curve and approaches a red light. And after an hour or two behind the wheel, that 15 year old thinks, yeah, you know, I can drive down the road all by myself through a snowstorm at 75 miles an hour. And if you're the parent of a teenage driver, if you ever had a teenage driver, you know full well it takes more than 10 hours behind the wheel to become a good driver. But to that kid, it feels stifling. It feels overbearing. It's not fair. But it's not until later that he realizes the benefit of learning to drive the right way. Same for us today. You know, uh, the government tells us we can't do two things at the same time. So they say no texting and driving. And some of us think that's not fair. It's, we can multitask. The government says no. Um, and you don't realize the point of the law until one day I'm driving down the freeway and this guy swerves into my lane and I have to swerve to miss him. And I look over and what's in his hand? A cell phone. And it clicks. That law is for my benefit. It's for my protection. And it's not just a parent's rules. It's not just the government's laws. God's rules are the same way. He's instituted them for our benefit and for our protection, and when we fail to trust Him enough to obey Him, there's devastating consequences. And one of those areas is intimacy, which God has designed specifically for the context of marriage, that any sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage is completely against what God has designs. But the allure of sexual sin, it can be so enticing that we can't see beyond the desire to the consequences that come down the road. Because the momentary pleasure of sin is never worth the lifetime of hurt and pain. Even as you've seen the news over the last couple of months, as more and more of these misconduct cases have come out, we have seen how many lives have been ravaged by someone else's sexual sin. And it's resulted in years of hurt And pain. Hmm. We all to some extent understand the pain that comes with sexual brokenness. Either our own or someone else's. So God's desire for you, his desire for me to live a pure life is not stifling. It's not overbearing. But it's actually freeing and satisfying. Because God's way is not just the right way. It's the best way. Because desire for us is for you and I to live a pure life. Now, y'all can take a deep breath. The sermon is not going to be edgy. It's not going to be explicit. It's not going to be crude. Frankly, I didn't even choose this passage. Here's my theory. Pastor Jeff thought it'd be hilarious to watch one of the young pastors squirm while preaching on purity. And apparently half of you think that's funny too. (laughs) So do I. So we can just all agree on that. I am not the expert on purity. Am, I'm not. Do not claim to be the expert, but I know who is. God's the expert. And all I want to do this morning is just guide us through a great text in First Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul outlines very clearly, very appropriately, what it looks like for you, what it looks like for me to live a life of purity. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me get us up to speed on the background of our text. Paul was writing to a church in Thessalonica that was ravaged by immorality. Now, the church was comprised of Jews and former Gentiles. The sexual ethic of the Jews was almost identical to that of these new Christians. But the sexual ethic of these former Gentiles was anything but similar to that of the Christians. Let me paint a picture for you. Immorality in Thessalonica wasn't just tolerated it was welcomed and they celebrated immorality as part of their religious ceremonies so for these gentiles that all of a sudden decided to become christians they had a drastically new sexual ethic and it had a huge impact on their way of life but doesn't that culture sound familiar because you and i live in a world that doesn't just tolerate immorality it welcomes it all you need to do is turn on the tv scroll through your facebook feed remember the conversations you've heard at work, because things that were taboo just 50 years ago are totally acceptable now. And our world has a growing acceptance of public immorality, it's not just a private thing. So Paul's words from this fourth chapter of Thessalonians, they, they aren't just countercultural for them. They're countercultural for us as well. So with that background, let's read our text. Follow along with me as I read from First Thessalonians four. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, On the first two and a half verses of our passage, we see the point. Paul is asking, he's urging his readers that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they please God. And Paul's words for instructions in verse 2 is an interesting one in the Greek. It's uncommon, but it's used in other places to describe military orders. So what Paul is saying is his command, his exhortation that's about to follow, it's not from him. These are not his words, but these are from the Lord. That leads to a really important statement in verse 3. This is God's will. How many of us in some sphere of our life are asking that question? What is God's will? What college should I go to? Should I take this job? Should we buy this house? When should I retire? Should we move closer to family? Should we have another child? What's God's will? What does he want me to do? In our passage, we don't have to guess, because God makes it crystal clear what his will is. In two words, your sanctification. Now that's a really big Christianese words that means something really simple, looking more like Jesus. Sanctification is looking more like Jesus. And we have to understand the difference between salvation and sanctification. Salvation is something that happens in an instant. Sanctification is something that happens for a lifetime. Salvation is a work done totally by the Lord, but sanctification is a work between our human spirit and the Holy Spirit to daily transform us to look more like Christ. So sanctification, Christian growth, is something that's gradual. It's something that happens over time. But in the Christian life, there's not a neutral. Sometimes it feels like two steps forward and one step back, but there's not a neutral, because the Christian life is sort of like walking through an airport on one of those conveyor belts. You know what I'm talking about? Things that help you go faster when you're almost going to miss your flight. But imagine you're walking on that, and you're going the wrong direction, If you stop walking, if you stop fighting through the crowds, what happens? You go backwards. Because you and I, in the Christian life, we have an enemy that does not want us to grow. So if we stop battling, if we stop fighting for our growth, we'll slide backwards. It is God's will for you and I that we grow in holiness. And part of God's will is is holiness. And part of our holiness is personal purity. And that's what Paul focuses in on in our passage this morning. So that leads us to an important question. What is God's will for you? What is God's will for me in this area of our life? How do we submit to God's will for personal purity? Well, what Paul does is he provides a couple of things. He provides the expectation, the motivation, and the empowerment for our sanctification. So the expectation, the motivation, and the empowerment. So first, his expectation. And he provides three of them. And the first one we see in verse 3, God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now the Greek word for sexual immorality is the word porneia. It's an all-encompassing term because Paul's not just talking uh, to married or, or unmarried, but this refers to all sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. Anything from lust, to adultery. And to abstain means to cut off completely, to stay away from. Paul provides zero space for any gratification outside of marriage. There's no space for a a casual glance or a harmless, lustful thought. First Corinthians 6 verse 18 helps us understand what it means to abstain. Let's read the first four words of this verse. Flee from sexual immorality that's what it means to abstain to flee to run away a pastor i respect used the following story he had a man come into his office who had just committed adultery and this man was livid at god that god would allow him to commit adultery cuz he'd prayed over and over and over again god don't let me give into this sin and the man said well i'm in your office and i gave into this sin i'm so mad at god as you can understand the pastor a little confused why are you mad at god so he asked him a couple questions he said well when you felt that emotional attachment for that woman begin to grow, did you ask your wife to pray for you? D- did you talk to anyone about it? Did you avoid this woman? And the man said, nah. I didn't ask my wife to pray for me, and I had lunch with this woman every day for a month. Because when that man felt the emotional attachment towards this woman begin to grow, he didn't run. He embraced it. And he acted surprised when he gave in to sin. At the first sign of temptation, we need to run the other way. That's a negative example. How about a positive one? There's a young man that works for a small business here in Wausau that's operated out of the owner's home. And they do a lot of contract work with the government, so the owner is flying back and forth between Wausau and Washington, D.C. almost every week. But that leaves this young man at home alone with the owner's wife. And as time progresses, the boss's wife begins to find this young man increasingly attractive. So she starts trying to lure him into temptation, into sin, to entice him. And uh, it gets worse and worse. And at the first sign of temptation, every time he runs the other way. And it gets so bad that one day she grabs him by his shirt and tries to pull him into the bedroom. And he runs so fast in the other direction, it rips his shirt, leaving his button up in her hand. Now some of you are thinking... There's no way a young man would resist temptation over and over and over again. But I didn't make that up. That's Joseph. You Remember the book of Genesis when Potiphar's wife tried to lure Joseph into sin over and over and over again. At the first sign of temptation, Joseph ran the other way, leaving his coat behind him. And that's what you and I need to do. At the first sign of temptation, we need to run the other way. That's what it means to flee. Because it's so much easier for us to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. Don't linger on that Instagram post. Don't remain alone. Don't stay on that television channel. The goal must never be, let me get as close to the line as I possibly can. Because when you and I begin to walk down the path of temptation, the desire for that sin begins to cloud our judgment, cloud our wisdom, that we can't see past the desire to the sin that's going to come down the road. And then we end up like the first man in our example, surprised that we committed the sin we never thought we'd commit. We have to abstain immediately when it comes to sexual temptation. But long before the behavior, long before the action, we have to understand that the battle to abstain starts in our hearts and in our minds. And Jesus understood that. He said the following in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus understood that the temptation, the resisting temptation starts in the heart and in the mind. Because thought patterns lead to behavior every single time. God doesn't just care about our actions, he cares about our hearts. So if we faithfully fight for purity in our hearts and in our minds, then the actions won't ever be a problem. Because this old adage is true. If we sow a thought, we reap an action. If we sow an action, we reap a habit. If we sow a habit, we reap a character. we sow a character, then we reap a destiny. So when it comes to temptation and immorality, let's resist at the root cause of our sin, our thought life. Think of it this way. We're a week into January, which means you're a week into your New Year's resolution diet to eat healthier. And for you, that means one thing, no dessert. To me, that sounds like torture, but you think that's a good idea. Okay, follow along with me. But you're on a business trip, and your 7 coworkers decide, hey, for dinner, we're going to go to the Cheesecake Factory. You love cheesecake. The more chocolate, the more peanut butter, the better. So when you walk into the Cheesecake Factory, there's the huge display right when you walk in and you try not to look. And then you're, you see the menu and you try not to glance at all 75 different cheesecake flavors. And then just because your coworkers really care about you, all of them order your favorite cheesecake, all seven of them. And the more you try to tell yourself, stop thinking about the cheesecake, your mouth begins to drool. Because the more you dwell on not thinking about it, the more you actually start thinking about the cheesecake. You know, and the same goes for us with temptation. If we keep telling ourselves, stop thinking about it, stop thinking about it, stop thinking about it, we actually end up dwelling on it more. What we need to do is we need to replace that thought with something better. Now, when it comes to dessert, there's nothing better than cheesecake. So that's where my analogy falls short. But when it comes to our thought life, there's always something better to set our minds on, and that's Jesus Christ. So when the temptation to lust, the desire comes, we need to replace that thought with something about Christ. You know, a pastor I uh, respect gave this idea and said, you know, when the desire comes, find a song to sing. And if you can't sing, then whistle. If you can't whistle, then hum. If you can't do any of those three, maybe shoot Jeff Weiss an email and he'll teach you something. I don't know. (laughs) But not just any song. A song that directs our thoughts to Christ. Something like, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're not thinking about cheesecake anymore because we found something better to set our minds on, and that's Jesus. So when the desire, when the temptation comes, we need to replace that temptation, replace that thought with a thought about Christ. because our battle to abstain from sin, it starts here. So that's Paul's first excerpt, or first uh, encouragement to us, expectation that we abstain. But the second one we see in verses four and five, let me read that for us from our passage. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul here, he begins with a negative example, the passion and lust of the Gentiles. And here, Paul covers the whole spectrum of sexual desire because passion is passive, but lust is active. And remember, the Christians, or the people that surrounded the Christians in Thessalonica, were anything but Christian when it came to this area. Of their lives. They did not have control over their own bodies, but they were controlled by their sexual desires. For us, Paul is saying that we need to have self control over our own bodies. Because as a Christian, there's gonna be a constant battle of putting away ourselves and putting on Christ, a continual denial of ourselves. And if someone feels like he or she doesn't have control over his own body, that, that is not God's plan. He desires, he expects that we have self-control. That's Paul's second expectation. We control our own bodies. So if someone feels like they're being controlled by their desires, there's some practical things that we could do to regain that self-control. Well, first, we need to want to change. Let me illustrate it this way. I remember working with a guy who was struggling in the area of purity in another state, and uh, he verbally expressed a desire to change, to, to stop giving into to this sin. But when push came to shove, he didn't want to take any practical steps to get rid of the sin in his life, to remove the temptation. So that revealed to me that even though he said he wanted to change, he didn't really want to change. He wanted to sin more. And if you and I, if we want to change, if we want to have self-control, then we need to desire that God takes that primary spot in our lives. We need to want to change. Second step to gaining self-control is we need to admit that we don't have power on our own. Because without the Holy Spirit, none of us would withstand temptation. We must admit our dependence on the Lord, trusting and relying on Him continually. Because if we try to fight this battle on our own, we won't win. None of us are beyond committing the sin we never thought we'd commit. So we have to daily, constantly depend on Him. If we want self-control, we must be controlled by the Spirit. Now, third, in addition to himself, the Holy Spirit, God has given us another gift, and that's one another. We need relationships. We need accountability. Now, I know the word accountability comes with some baggage in Christian circles today. True gospel accountability is not a confession circle. That's what we call reactive. No, true accountability is proactive. It's someone who knows the right questions to ask you, who knows your weak areas, who's encouraging you to spend time in the Lord, who's asking me, Sam, have you read the Bible? Have you spent time in prayer? That's accountability, because we all need a brother, a sister, a fellow soldier, because when we become an island, when we're isolated, it's so much easier to give in to sin. The late Howard Hendricks conducted a study. He interviewed 246 pastors over a two-year period, all of whom had fallen morally. He found something interesting. None of the pastors had consistent accountability in their lives. Zero. They all tried to do battle on their own, and they lost. But the truth is, pastors aren't the only ones that need accountability. Each one of us needs a brother, a sister, a fellow soldier. So if that's something that you or I don't have, then this would be a great week to establish that sort of a relationship. And accountability, it doesn't just come knocking on our door. We might need to seek it out. We might need to have an uncomfortable conversation with someone. But if that's the price we have to pay to living a holy life, then it's worth it. Because God desires that we abstain and that we have self-control. But when our desires control us rather than the Holy Spirit, then our desires, our sin, it begins to affect us as individuals. But it goes deeper than that because sin is always deeper than just the personal level. And that leads to Paul's third expectation that we do not sin against one another. We get that from verse 6 where he said that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The verb transgress here means to overstep boundaries. And Paul's statement helps us see that sexual sin is never a private It's never a personal thing. Yes, immorality is a sin we commit against our own bodies, but we have to understand that even private sins have corporate consequences, which is why Paul can say, don't transgress your brother in this matter. And brother is a generic term for anyone in the church family, so it can mean brother or sister, because when we sin, when we sin sexually, we sin against one another. Let me prove it to you this way. Imagine there's a young man who is addicted to pornography, that stunts his spiritual and emotional growth. And that transgresses everyone around him because it limits his capacity to serve the church. It limits his capacity to have true relationships with other people. He sins against his brothers and sisters. You know, when someone gives in to adultery, they don't just sin against themselves. They sin against the other's spouse, their kids, their own spouse. And if you've experienced secondhand the pain of adultery, you know that It's more than just a personal thing. When a couple are intimate before marriage, even if they eventually get married, they destroy trust between one another. Why would they trust each other in marriage if they weren't faithful before? That's why Paul can say when you sin in this area, you're transgressing one another. Don't sin against one another. Though it has the appearance of secrecy, sexual sin is never a private thing. So that's the expectation that Christians abstain, control, and do not transgress one another in this area. But Paul, he knows we're stubborn. He knows that I'm stubborn. He knows that sometimes we need a motivation behind the expectation. So Paul paints that for us in verse 6. Even though our culture might scoff at abstinence and self-control as something being archaic and boring, we know that God's design is freeing and satisfying. Because when we break God's law regarding purity, he is the avenger and the punisher. And that's our motivation to living a pure life, that God disciplines those who give in to temptation. Even the most private sins do not go unnoticed by God. And when we think we can get away with something, God always knows. What Moses said to the Israelites is true for us today. Your sin will find you out because sexual sin is never without consequences. And it seems in this passage that God places a further weight on the sin of sexual immorality. But Sam, all sins are equal in God's sight, right? Well, it sounds trite. I don't think that's true. Let's look at 1 Corinthians six, eighteen. The second half of the verse says, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin is more severe than other sins. Because if we sin sexually, we don't just damage someone else, we damage ourselves. One of the common misconceptions about immorality is that uh, sexual sin isn't that bad. You know, I'm going to have my fun for now. I'm going to have my fun in college and, you know, I'll just clean up my act later. But sexual sin is that bad. It's completely against God's design who designed sex in the first place. It's a good thing within the context of marriage And sex is powerful because it unites two people in a way that words can't even express. So when we take the power of sex and we distort it, it has devastating consequences. Hmm. And our enemy, he knows this. That's why sexual temptation is so pervasive. Because our enemy knows the, the power that comes with sex and the devastating consequences when we give in to temptation. So we all have to battle hard in this area of our lives. And we understand even the natural consequences that come from giving in to this sin, either our own sin or someone else's, because adultery, it shatters marriages and families. Intimacy before marriage brings baggage into an eventual marriage. Personal sin leads to guilt and shame and regret. Because even when we repent of our sin, even when we turn away from it and confess it, we're not excused from the earthly consequences. Now, as Christians, we're forgiven of the eternal consequences of our sin, eternal death. But that doesn't excuse us from the earthly consequences. Think of King David, for example. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, Uriah, he thought he was going to get away with it. Until the prophet Nathan knocks on his door and confronts him. And David is convicted of his sin. He confesses it to the Lord and asks for forgiveness and turns away from it. But was David excused of the consequences of his sin? No. The child that was conceived would die, and there would be turmoil in his reign. And what do we learn from David? That the momentary act of immorality produced pain for the rest of his life, and the consequences of his sin extended far beyond just himself, but to his family and to his entire nation. The momentary pleasure of sin is never worth the lifetime of consequences. Now, was David forgiven of his sin? Yeah. Did he still have to face the consequences of his sin? Yeah. We must never believe the lie that we can get away with sin. Sin is never worth it. So if someone has been hiding sin in this area of their life, the best thing that person could do is to confess that sin. Talk to a pastor. Find an accountability partner. Bring that sin to light. Because we can't hide from our sin forever. And as we learn from David, it's much easier when we expose our own sin than when God does it for us. Hmm. Well, I love how Paul closes this section. Just as we're fe- feeling beat up, just as we're feeling like this battle is insurmountable and it's too hard and it's not worth it. He encourages us just with this little statement at the end of verse 8. It's not even a full sentence. He says, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Because when you and I become Christians, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. That's crazy that God can live inside of us. And the Spirit doesn't want to leave us where we are, but desires to daily transform us to look more and more like Christ. Yeah, the battle might feel tough. It might even feel insurmountable. But we have the Holy Spirit. We can win the battle every single time. And notice the tense of the verb in verse 8. Paul didn't say, and he gave his spirit to you. And that is true. We receive the spirit when we become Christians. But what Paul says, who gives the spirit to you? Paul's emphasizing the ongoing effects of the spirit in our lives. When you get the spirit, you're not going to lose it. Nothing's going to change that. So, as Christians, we must be controlled by the Spirit, and we yield to the Spirit's control in our life through the spiritual disciplines. These are activities like Bible reading and prayer and fellowship that promote spiritual growth. And the disciplines, they open the door of our heart, allowing the Spirit to come in and make us look more like Christ. Think of it this way. There's incredible power in the sun, the one in the sky, that one. That's an objective reality. But for us as people to harness the power of the sun, we need a solar panel. The Holy Spirit is powerful, wants to change us. That's an objective reality. But for us to harness the power of the Spirit, for us to be controlled by the Spirit, our solar panel is the spiritual disciplines. If we're not living a spiritually disciplined life, We cannot be controlled by the Spirit. That leads just to a really practical question. Are are you reading the Bible? Am I spending time in prayer? When was the last time you fasted? Have you spent any time in personal worship? Are we making it a priority to be at church or even serving in the church? Because if we want to be controlled by the Spirit, then we have to be participating in the disciplines. Because God has given us everything that we need to live a holy life. love this verse from 2 Peter Peter said, his divine power has granted to us some things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay, three of you are paying attention. His divine power has granted to us most things that pertain to life and godliness. Is that what it says? No. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Because the one who has called us to live a holy life has not left us powerless. He's given us the Spirit. He's given us one another. He's given us the ability to resist temptation and to live a holy life. Because God's design is not just the right way, it's the best way. And we need to trust him in that. Just like that three-year-old kid needed to trust his parents and not run across the street. Just like that teenage driver needed to yield to his parents' control and learn how to drive the right way. Just like you and I need to put our phones down and trust texting and driving is hazardous to our health. We need to trust that God's design for purity is the right way. So let's live lives of purity for his glory and also for our good. Let's pray. Father, it's been a joy to open your word this morning. Thank you for your desire to change us and to transform us, to look more and more like your son. And and we ask through the power of your Spirit, that you'll do that, that you'll daily transform us to look more like Christ, and that we can use tools like the spiritual disciplines and the power of the Spirit, and even the tool of one another to pursue holiness. And help us see that the momentary pleasure of sin is never worth the lifetime of consequences, and give us the desire in our own hearts to live a life of holiness. You're a good and you're a gracious Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name.